Lamentations chapter 3. Um, as Troy mentioned, my name is Jim. I live in a place called Vero Beach, Florida. And yeah, amen. So uh, it's a beautiful uh, little oasis right on the Atlantic Ocean. If you were to look at the, the very northern border of Florida where it reaches Georgia and then the very southern tip in Miami and you were to go about halfway and that's us, about halfway right on the Atlantic Ocean. A wonderful place. Um, I have been married for uh, 33 years. My wife and I have uh, four grown sons. They're all married, and uh, we have now three grandsons. So, like Kentucky Fried Chicken, apparently Gallagher's do one thing, and that is male. Um, and uh, it's it's exciting. Um, whatever might be going on in my life, if I just think about my three little grandsons, uh, my life is wonderful. So if you ask me, hey, Jim, how's it going? And I say, things are awesome. And you say, but Jim, you're on fire. And I say, yeah, but I have three grandkids. So <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, we're going to be looking at a text this morning that uh, whether or not you knew its location, you are probably familiar with its content. You've probably heard its, its sentiment or the, the doctrine that it presents. It's here in Lamentations 3, uh, verse 22. It reads this way. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Not just a wonderful truth. I mean, there are, there are passages of Scripture that when you read them, it's just like refreshing. It's, you know, if, if you're, you're out, it's, it's, it's in the summer, it's hot, you're, you're, you're exerting physical exercise, you're thirsty, and then you grab an ice-cold drink, and it's just refreshing. That, that verse is just like that. Through the Lord's mercies, we're not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Just a wonderful truth. But I want to talk about a little bit about its usefulness. And that is to say, the truths that are packed in this poetic statement that Jeremiah makes, that the, he, he uses these truths in a very practical way in light of the circumstances that he is facing. And so in order to do that, we're going to leave uh, this passage. We're going to leave Lamentations and we're going to look at two passages in the New Testament and we're going to sort of frame what we're going to talk about here. Now, we're going to be in those passages and in that framework for just long enough that you're going to have forgotten that we were in Lamentations 3. And just at that point where you forget where we are, I'll bring you back and we'll take a look at what Jeremiah has to say. And so the first place I want to draw your attention to is a statement that Paul makes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy 1 at verse 7. And Paul writes to Timothy, he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. And what's that final phrase? A sound mind. So what Timothy is, he's a young man. He's not a, he's not a teenager any longer, but he's a young man. And he's a young man with, with a, a great responsibility. And with that great responsibility comes many, a variety of different challenges. The great responsibility that he had was he was pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus. 
Ephesus was one of the largest and one of the most influential cities in the first century Roman world. Um, and the church there in Ephesus was one of the most effective and influential churches of the first century. If you're looking at a map, Ephesus sits um, over in western Turkey. It sat there on the Aegean. And um, the, the church in Ephesus, not only were they impacting the community of Ephesus, you can read the story of its birthing in Acts 19, but they also were influencing that whole region. Um, Jesus wrote letters to seven churches in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, and those churches were all extensions or church plants from the church in Ephesus. So they're having a tremendous impact. Now, with a, with a growing church um, in an influential church in first century Rome, Timothy would no doubt face a host of different challenges. The, the expansion of the church in the first century we saw as often met by social and increasing uh, uh, political persecution. And so he's facing these challenges. And what's true of human nature is that the, the circumstances that we face in life, they're challenging, but one of the most challenging things about them is they incite emotions within us. So you, you face a circumstance, and suddenly that, that circumstance incites fear, in you or anxiety or, or a, a sense of your own inability or weaknesses. And so now, not only do you have the challenge that you're facing, but you have the challenge that you're facing mixed in with all the emotions that make it even more difficult. So Timothy is standing there attempting to grow into the person that God wants him to be and accomplish the things that God's called him to do, and he has all these challenges. And so Paul writes to him about things that are critical for him. He says, one of the things he says, well, the spirit's important. You need to work of the spirit in your life. God's, God's given you a spirit. But then he also says, Timothy, if you're going to navigate your way forward, you need to have a sound mind. A sound mind is necessary for you, Timothy. And I, I think for our purposes, we might simply say, if we are going to become the people that God intends us to become, and we are going to accomplish the things that God has called us to accomplish, it's essential that we have a sound mind. Paul uses a very similar phrase. In the New King James, it's the identical phrase, speaking of himself in 2 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians 5 at verse 13, Paul says this, if we, speaking about himself and his team, he says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. So if we seem to be beside ourselves, it's for God. He says, or if we have a sound mind, it is for you. Now that phrase, beside yourself, um, do you think that's a complimentary statement? In other words, if you were walking up, there were some friends of yours and they were talking about you and they didn't see you and you overheard the conversation and they said, yeah, they're a little beside themselves. Do you feel good about yourself? Oh, I love my friends so much. Or did they just call you insane? This, this same Greek phrase is translated somewhere else, speaking of someone who seems to be out of their mind, right? They're a little bit 
ear, ear. Like, <laughs> you're just not quite all there. So what Paul's saying, he's saying, listen, when, when, you, when you look at us, when to us, he might say, when you're reading my story and you read about some of the things that we do and some of the things that we do, they seem to be like, are you sure that's a good idea? Like in this particular moment, in light of the, 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 the social sort of setting that you're in, in light, in light of the rising civil conflict that, that's going on, Paul, you really think it's a good idea to do that? I mean, there are times, I think of when Paul went on his first missionary journey and they went into that region of Galatia, that's Eastern, you guys are over here, Eastern Turkey. And they go into a particular town and they present the gospel message and people are very agitated by it. And they attempt to kill Paul. They throw rocks at him. They leave him for dead. Paul's revived. He's cared for. When he gets his strength back, we're not told. Luke doesn't tell us exactly how long that took. But then Paul gets up and I'm going to add a little color to the story. But he gets up, he starts walking and the guys are hey, where are you going, Paul? And Paul says, well, I'm going back into that town. I didn't finish. They think, I'm not sure that's a bright idea. That seems to be a little crazy, Paul. You seem to be beside yourself. I mean, we have a definition today of craziness. It is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. You know, Paul, I, we know it's going to happen to you. And it wasn't the only time. This, when Paul was later, at, at, at the, as, as the book of Acts is coming to its close, Paul is on an endeavor to make his way to Jerusalem because his heart, as he's seen such effectiveness in his ministry in reaching the Gentile world, but his heart is for his own countrymen. And so he makes his way to Jerusalem. And travel in the ancient world was very slow. And so it would, it would require many stops along the way. And Paul took advantage of those stops to gather with other believers, sought to encourage them, sought to be encouraged by them. And we get a few little sneak peeks into some of those stops. And in each case, people warn Paul about what's going to happen to him if he goes to Jerusalem. Say, Paul, listen, if, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested and you're going to be beaten and you're going to be incarcerated and there's a very high likelihood that you're going to be killed. And Paul says, well, I know that. And they say, well, where are you going? Well, Jerusalem. You go, that, that might be a little crazy. Do you understand what he's saying is, is I venture into things that may disrupt the, the, what's happening culturally. It may even put myself to some degree at risk. I'm doing that for the kingdom. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm beside myself, it's for the Lord. But then he says this. But if I am of a sound mind, it's for you. In other words, Paul is saying not only is a sound mind something that is critical if you and I are going to develop into the people that God wants us to become, but a sound mind is also critical if we are going to be able to have an influence upon others within the church or if the church that we participate in is going to have a positive influence upon the community that we're in. It's essential. One thing that's happening in our world currently is, and, and this, this is just how I'm going to put it, people are losing their minds. People are, I mean, people are behaving in a lot of very erratic ways. 
And it's essential for the child of God, for our own development, but also for the sake of the world that we have been sent by Jesus to influence, that we have a sound mind. Now, what is a sound mind? I think one way we could define a sound mind is just the ability to remain calm and stay focused in the midst of challenging circumstances. So that person that's, you know, we'd say maybe the opposite of a sound mind is panic, where you see somebody just, ah, they're just being irrational, and they're just spinning. And that would be the opposite of a sound mind. A person of a sound mind is a person that's able to remain calm regardless of the challenging circumstances. When my youngest son graduated from middle school, we went to his graduation, and like all graduations, they had a commencement speech. And this commencement speech, and I don't know how they got, they, they worked this out, but this um, individual was a Navy, or I'm sorry, a, a military pilot. And he told a story about how he was flying a cargo plane, they had passengers in it as well, from Africa across. And they got to about the midway point. Now, if you're in the midway point and you're driving, and the car breaks down, that's okay. You might not be in your favorite spot to stop at, but if you're in the midway point and you're flying over the Atlantic Ocean, that's a bummer. And as they're flying, he said, suddenly the roof of the cockpit ripped off. Suddenly the vehicle that they're flying is now a convertible. <laughs> now, as a result, the, 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 the individuals that were in the back of the plane most of them were asleep, and so they immediately passed out for lack of oxygen. He was able to grab his oxygen and get it on quickly. The co-pilot was not able to get his on quick enough. So he's flying the plane. It's, it's got all the added pressures of, of flying a, 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 a plane that wasn't intended to be a convertible. The noise, the shaking that's going on, all of the chaos that's happening. And he's trying to control the plane and get it down to a safer altitude. But the co-pilot didn't get oxygen in quick enough, and so his brain is lacking oxygen, and he's behaving completely erratically. So with one hand, he's navigating the plane, and with the other hand, he's beating off the co-pilot, <laughs> beating him back to get the plane. Now, I stopped at that point in the story when I shared it last service, and somebody came up to me afterwards, and they said, you left us hanging. What happened? And I thought, well, if the guy stood in front of us and told us the story, couldn't you have figured out what happened? <laughs> so, okay, they made it. But, but listen, here's my point. If you were in the back of that plane, aren't you happy that the pilot has a sound mind? That he's not panicking, that he's being rational? But I would say, biblically speaking, the idea of a sound mind is not just the ability to remain calm, but it's also the ability to remain, remain focused. Focused on who is God and what is God actually doing? What, what, what is it that God is actually doing in the world? Who are you, God, and what is it that you're doing? You know, I, I think about biblical stories where characters face challenging circumstances, and yet they, they remain with that idea of, of having a sound mind. I think of when Paul was uh, in, he was in Philippi. You remember the story? He's preaching the gospel. He gets arrested, beaten, 
incarcerated, and the and the jail that they're in is in, is so deplorable that they don't be able to. They, he and Silas don't seem to be able to sleep. So in the middle of the night, they're worshiping, and then there's an earthquake. I mean, if, if <laughs> I meet you afterwards, we're in the ba- in the lobby, we're having a coffee, and I say, so. You know, how are you? You know, what'd you do yesterday? And you say, well, you know, I got, I got falsely accused and then I got arrested. I got beat up and, and then I got thrown into this stinky, damp, terrible jail that I couldn't sleep in. I'm thinking, well, that's a bad day. And then there was an earthquake. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. I don't believe that. You're making this like, like that's a bad day. But when the jail cell bursts open from the earthquake, Paul and Silas don't panic. Nor do they walk calmly out of the prison. They stayed focused on what God had called them to do. And the end result is they lead the guard to the Lord. They lead the guard's family to the Lord. And they also are able to, in some positive way, influence the city of Philippi so that this new church that had just been birthed could now have some, it, there was intense persecution, but it has some level of peace so it can grow and expand. By the time the book of Philippians is written, it is a growing church affecting the area. And so there's this idea that a sound mind is not just the ability to stay calm, but it's the ability to keep my eyes on who God is and what it is that God's actually doing in the world. A sound mind, our 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 court system recognizes, our law system recognizes the importance of a sound mind. If a person has committed a criminal act and it has been deemed that they are not of a sound mind, then it's also recognized that they are not completely culpable for their actions. It doesn't mean they're completely innocent. It doesn't mean that there aren't repercussions, but there's just a recognition The fact that they had an unsound mind caused them to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise done. The same thing's true in our civil law. If an individual, they they have um, their assets and they put together a document that explains what they want done with those assets after they pass, that document cannot be changed if that person is deemed not to have a sound mind. Because as a recognition, a person of an unsound mind is easily influenced to think things or do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. So just like we recognize this, sound mind is important. Now I told you we would be outside of Lamentations just long enough that you would forget that we started there. So let's go back to Lamentations now. And we'll see why we spent some time framing this idea, the importance of a sound mind. And again, a sound mind being not only the ability to remain calm, but the ability to see things in light of who God is and what it is that he's doing. Let's take a look. We'll be at verse 21. Verse 21, we read, Jeremiah writes, this I recall to my what? mind. This is what I'm thinking about. Therefore, I have hope. Hope is a confidence in what is coming, a confidence that the the circumstances that are right now are not going to overwhelm, that, that there's something in the future. And he says, I have that because there's certain things that I call to my mind. And then he says, 
through the Lord's mercies were not consumed because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, Jeremiah was facing very difficult circumstances, and these circumstances were inciting within him very challenging emotions that he had to deal with. How do we know that? Take a look at verse 4. Remember, Jeremiah's writing, um, he's writing poetically. So he's not just writing a diary account. He's not giving a narration. He's writing poetry. He's expressing something. He says this, verse 4, he has aged my flesh and skin and broken my bones. Now, we don't have to completely analyze that to know that's not good, right? If somebody says, hey, how are you feeling? I feel like my skin's aging and my bones are broken. You go, okay. Next, (laughs) I want a different conversation. Um, Take a look at verse 6. He says, he's set me in a dark place like the dead of long ago. Verse 7, he hedged me in. I can't get out. Verse uh, verse 9, he has blocked my ways with hewn stone and made my paths crooked. Verse 10, this is beautiful in a horrible way. He has been to me a bear lying in wait and a lion in ambush. (laughs) That's not fun. Um, Verse 12 is my favorite. He says, he has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He's caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. It's like, hey, after class, we're going to do archery. You can come if you'll be the target. So, it's, it, do you understand, like, he's, he's using poetry to describe difficulty that he's experiencing, this, this emotion. Now, what's causing it is Jeremiah is sitting, um, and he's overlooking what was once the city of Jerusalem. But the city, ha- it lies in rubble. The temple is destroyed. Um, uh, roughly a third of the people have died in battle. Another third have died from pestilence. Another third, remember I said roughly, another third are taken into captivity. And the small remnant that makes up the difference are there living in severe famine. It's horrible. And the cause of it is decades of the nation discarding the word of God and the ways of God. The nation deciding we no longer want to be a pinnacle or a light or representative of God to the world. We want to embrace the mores of the nations that are around us. And that brought wickedness and sin into the nation. And that ultimately brought the judgment of God upon the nation. And Jeremiah is sitting there looking at this rubble. And inside of him, he feels like he's in darkness. He feels like he's almost dead. He feels like he's being shot with arrows. He's struggling. So what does he do? He says, this I call to mind. I want you to note three things here as we walk through this portion of the text. Three things that he calls to his mind. Verse 22, he says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Let me read that verse to you in a couple different translations. Listen to the New American Standard. The Lord's acts of mercy do not end. So God's mercy doesn't end. The ESV, the steadfast love of the Lord never ends. But listen to the NIV. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. 
The CSB reads, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. Now, if you're an inductive Bible student you, and you make a comparison between two translations, you look and you think, these are saying something very different. The two of the translations that I read are saying the mercy of God doesn't end. And two of the translations that I read are saying the people of God don't end. And you look and you say, well, which one is true? Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not sure I'm any type of scholar. However, what I understand from this is that there's enough ambiguity in the text to allow for both. The idea is this, because God's mercy doesn't end, this is not the end. I wonder how many times in your own personal life you've felt like you might come to the end. This is it. The, the circumstances that you're facing, you don't see any possible way out of them. You think, I don't, I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't know if we're going to make it past this. You feel like just this is the end. Here's what you need to call to mind. You need to call to mind God's mercies don't end. This is not the end. I can think back to the early years of, of us um, planting the church in Vero and my wife and I painstakingly seeking the Lord to make decisions and we make a decision and it seems to go bad and I think, well, that's it. We'll never make it past this. That was that decision undid the whole work of the Spirit of God and the power of His Word in the community and we'll never make it past this poor decision that Jim made, right? And I wonder just in our own personal lives how many times we feel like this is the end. Can I encourage you, since God's mercies don't end, this is not the end? I'm 56 years old, which in, in and I'm going to let you in for a moment on the weird way that my brain works, okay? And I'm going to let you out because no one should have to live there but me. But, <laughs> but listen, I'm 56 years old, so I think our nation has come to an end 14 times in my lifetime. Here's how I come to that. 56 divided by a four-year presidential term equals 14. <laughs> and every four years, half of our nation believes this is it. We can't make it. This is the end. Now, I am not. I am in one sense, but in another sense, I'm not. I am not making light of some of the some of the social issues or political things that are happening in the world that are, that are horrible. I'm not making in that sense, but what I am saying is it's not the end because God's mercies aren't at the end. When Jer this book is that we're looking at, what's it called? It's, it's in your Bible. You can look down on it. It's probably it's up in the top right corner. probably has it there for you. What's this book called? Lamentations. What is the root of the word Lamentations. Lament, and what is a synonym to the word lament? Starts with a W, ends with an eep. What is it? To weep or to cry or to mourn or to sorrow. Here's what's happening. Jeremiah, if, if you were to travel to Israel today and you were to ask a guide, where's Jeremiah's grotto? They'll take you to a spot that is at the foot of Mount Calvary. And there, it's believed, is where Jeremiah sat as he wrote this lament. And he's looking out over the rubble that was once the city of God. He's looking at the remains of what was once the temple of God. And he's lamenting. But listen, God's mercies don't end, so this isn't the end. In fact, 
a temple will be rebuilt on that spot that is far more glorious than the temple that Solomon built. And it's not more glorious because of the millions of Roman dollars that were put into its enhancement. It was more glorious because the feet of Jesus would walk in its courtyard. And, the, and, and uh, Jeremiah is sitting at the foot of Mount Calvary where Jesus will bleed and die to redeem humanity back to himself. Hey, it might look like the end, but it's not the end because his mercies don't end. He recalls a second thing to his mind. Verse 22 continues. He says, because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. So God's mercy never ends. And he says, and his compassions, they're available every morning. Now, the word compassion is a word that's synonymous really with, with the word mercy, but it does carry uh, some, some other connotations to it. When we see the word compassion in the New Testament, we see it as something that is moving the heart of God. There are, in, there are times when Jesus will encounter a person that is affected either by their own personal sin, by the sin of someone else, or by the fact that we live in a world that has been affected by sin. One particular case, he comes to a man who had leprosy. This man's condition was caused by the fact that the world is fallen and broken. And when Jesus saw this man in that condition, we're told that he was moved with compassion and he reached out to bring him aid. And so the idea of his compassions, it's not just this general sort of um, theological concept that God is by nature merciful, but it is the day-to-day -day action of God meeting us in our weakness and, and caring for us. Remember the, in the Old Testament, um, as the children of Israel were traveling through the wilderness, do you remember what their food source was? What did they eat? Manna, and where did they get it? Where did they get it? On the ground. And when did it show up? Every morning. Every morning, you just walk outside, and there's manna on the ground. Now, it was, it was there in the morning. It would pass away as, as the heat of the day came down upon it. It seems to be some sort of illustration. But certainly that idea that just as manna was there every day to nourish the people of God, he's saying, my compassions are there. So you're facing the challenges that you're going through. They're stirring up inside of you all these difficult emotions. You're not sure if you can make it. Can I encourage you that his compassions are there to meet you every morning? You can come to him. The last thing he calls to mind, he says in verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is my portion. Now, you'll come across, in your, as you're reading your Bible, you come across many words that are Bible words. In other words, they have no real contextual usage unless you are in the Bible or talking about the Bible. This is not one of those words. This is a word that you use in common, everyday vernacular. But in what setting would you most likely use the word portion? In what setting? When you're doing what? Eating. Right? And you would say either, this is my portion, or this is my portion. I have a disease. I don't think there's a cure for it. It's called order envy. And uh, whenever, whenever I go out to eat with anyone, 
I quiz everyone at the table. I ask them what they're ordering. And I'm trying to decide. And, and if, I'm, if I'm with my wife, I usually put pressure on her. And I say, what should I get? And she'll say, no, 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 no. You got to live with your decisions. And uh, so then, the, then, when, then when the waitress comes, every time, she'll say, ready to order? And I always say yes. And then I say, start over there. And I always end up last. I listen to every other person make their order. And then when the waitress gets, or waiter or waitress gets to me, I say, I, was, I used to say, what do you recommend? But then they recommend weird stuff. So I narrow it down to them. I get all the weird stuff off the table. And I say, should I get this or this? And they, oh, this one's really good. And I say, thank you very much. And then they come and they deliver the food. And they set it down. And as soon as they set the food down, I look at what's on everybody else's plate. And I think, ah, oh, I should have got that. I wonder if it would be, I wonder if I know them well enough to reach over and pull food off their plate. Okay, and so that, that'll, that'll determine the, the closeness of our relationship, is if I start eating off of your plate. So, you get the idea. He says, the Lord is my portion. What I need is found in the Lord, is what he's saying. It's a never-ending supply. So, look at, we are all, we are all facing similar circumstances because we all live in the world. We're all facing unique circumstances because of what we are currently walking through. Those circumstances incite with us, within us various emotions that some are more challenging than others. We cannot be a people that are driven by our emotions. We cannot be a people who are driven by whatever the social or political climate is. We have to be a people of a sound mind. We have to be a people that recognize who God is and what God's doing. And if your mind is particularly um, uh, bent by the circumstances that you're facing, then maybe simply calling to mind that God's mercies don't end, this is not the end. And to recognize that every morning His compassions are there for you, and there's no end to the portion that you can receive from the Lord. Let's stand together and let's pray. If you need prayer for something in particular, there'll be prayer teams on either side of the stage here afterwards. They'd love to talk with you and pray with you. I'm sure the people that, you're, that you came with, if you just say, hey, let's just pray for a few moments. Um, they'd love to pray with you and for you. Father, we are so thankful that whatever Whatever our day was yesterday and the yesterdays leading up to it, we thank you that we woke up this morning to a fresh portion of compassion, of, of your understanding and your desire to give us aid. We thank you, Lord, that we come to you who are a never-ending portion and that you will pour into where we lack with all of your supply. So we're asking God that you would fill us. We're asking, Lord, that as you made a distinction between Israel and the Egyptians as the plagues came, that you would make a distinction between those that love you and are walking with you and the world in all of its confusion, and that our lives would truly be a light to the world. Lord, fill us, help us, equip us in Jesus' name. Amen.